This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. Have you ever asked God for some sort of sign? Have you ever been going through some difficulty or some hardship and asked God to lead you through some obvious, clear, supernatural sign or miracle from above? Have you ever had doubts and you've asked God to prove himself to you this one time? Maybe to prove his presence, maybe to prove his identity, maybe to prove his plan, that where you think you're going is really where he's taking you. Have you ever asked God, God, show me a sign? I've been doing this long enough to know that most everyone in this room has. Well, in the Bible, this happened all the time. In Scripture, there was a lot of occurrences in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where even God's people, even the people who you would think would just trust implicitly in who God is and what he was doing, there's times when they asked him for some sort of sign, some sort of wonder or miracle or event that would permanently tattoo upon their conscience his identity, his presence, and his plan for them. Well, here's the thing. On many occasions in Scripture, God obliged. On a lot of occasions, when you know he doesn't have to, on a lot of occasions, God does what his people ask. Some of the signs that might occur to you, Gideon is one everyone thinks of, the wet fleece. He says, if you want me to do X, Y, Z, then let this fleece be wet overnight. And of course, that's what God does. The plagues, even to villains, sometimes God shows signs. The plagues were signs. They were meant to point Pharaoh to the hardness of his own heart and to the truth of God's prophet Moses. The ripped veil, if you think of the crucifixion, Jesus dies and in the temple the veil is ripped. To those with ears to hear, eyes to see, there's all manner of things, the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, all manner of things that God did that were indicative, A, that he was there, A, that he existed, and B, that he had a plan, and he was leading them, and sometimes that leading was as crystal clear as you could want, like the parting of the Red Sea shows you exactly where to go. There's a lot of times in the Bible where God did signs, but what he didn't do was signs on demand. What he didn't do was honor the demands, the insistent demands of pagans and unbelievers that he prove himself, that he peddle his latest miracle out there so that they could evaluate it and determine whether what he was saying was really true. Asking God to jump through some sort of hoop, telling God to jump through some sort of hoop, that's inherently dangerous. Not something to be done. Well, that brings us to a group of guys called the Pharisees. Anytime something stupid or silly or dangerous happens in the New Testament, enter stage left, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were those who looked religious. Remember them? They wore the tall pointy hats. They stood on the corner. They offered the loudest prayers. They sat in the best seats. The Pharisees looked the part. If you were a Jew in this context in the first century and someone asked you, point at the most religious person in the community, they would have pointed at the Pharisees because they looked the part. With that said, they were charlatans. They were a facade, a spiritual facade that hid dead bones. They were like the marble whitewashed tomb that was nothing but bones beneath. This is the Pharisees. And it's these same guys who Jesus, only a few verses earlier, talks about as a brood of vipers. These same guys that say, hey, Jesus, you just healed a demon-possessed, blind, mute man. But that's not enough. We want something better to prove your identity, to prove who you are. Well, by this point, Christ's patience, you would think, 
If you could ever exhaust the patience of God, which you can't, but if you could, it would be here. Jesus knew that those critics and cynics that were regularly following him along, he knew that they would never be satisfied no matter what he did. And so in today's text, they're going to say, hey, one more sign. Come on, one more sign. Do something splashy, something heavenly. And he's going to respond by saying, no deal. But then he's going to add something. He's going to add something interesting. Not only is he going to say no, but he's going to say this. He's going to say, all right, you want a sign. Yeah? You want a sign? An evil and adulterous generation like you wants a sign. Well, no sign is going to be given except one. And that's going to be the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now you can see the Pharisees in their mind. They're, they're reaching back, you know, it's the scrolling backwards to the book of Jonah and thinking, what? What happened to Jonah? What sign is he talking about? What is this all about? In your mind's eye, what do you think this is all about? Well, the good news is we're going to attempt to answer that this morning. If you would, take a look at verse 38. We're going to look at verses 38, uh, we'll work our way through 42, and we're going to try to understand what Jesus was saying, how it applied to the Pharisees back then, and how it applies to us. All right, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, and they said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. All right. As I said a few moments ago, at this point in Christ's ministry, Jesus had done plenty of signs, plenty of miracles. He'd done all manner of things. And these were not just parlor tricks. Jesus wasn't just walking into town with a hat, you know, pulling a rabbit out and saying, ta-da. He was doing miraculous things. There was people who was demon-possessed, demon-afflicted, and everyone knew it. In our day and age, we could never diagnose such a thing. In their day and age, they understood who were demon-afflicted. In their day and age, they knew it, and Jesus would say a word and cast demons out. He would approach blind people, mute people, people who were lame, couldn't walk and tell them to arise. He'd done all manner of things. Even again, the very chapter that we're reading from today, earlier in the chapter, Jesus had healed a demon-possessed individual who was blind. He was doing things that really had never been done before and really have never been done since. He was doing things that people had never seen. There was no precedent for it. This is not a rabbit out of a hat. This is all together different. And the Pharisees, they knew that. The Pharisees, they knew it. You see, name for me someone Jesus rose from the dead. Lazarus. There was others, though. Sometimes we don't remember them. At least on three occasions, Jesus had raised people from the dead. He did things, not just healing blind and mute people. He rose people out of tombs unto life. Again, no one had ever done such a thing. The Pharisees knew this. They knew it. They knew it. If you were to look in John 11, the Pharisees gathered a council together. And this is what they said. They said, what shall we do? Remember, they're all gathered together. This din of iniquity, these Pharisees are all together. And they say, what shall we do? What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What shall we do? This is again in John 11. The Pharisees were well aware that Jesus was doing all manner of wondrous, impressive signs, wondrous miracles that no one had ever done before. But rather than glorifying God through that, rather than saying amen, rather than being excited to see dead people walking, rather than be excited to see blind people seeing, they were grumpy. And they banded together in you know, this cloister, again, this den of iniquity. They came together and said, all right, what are we going to do? This guy's doing things. 
and everyone's going to find out about it. And if the Romans find out about this guy doing this sort of stuff, especially since he's not on our leash and we can't direct him at all, they're going to come in and they're going to take away our place in our nation. See, they felt threatened personally by someone outside of the authority chain doing things that they couldn't explain and then having the gall and temerity to call them brood of vipers and the like. So they said, this man works many signs. And they feared that these signs would result in an uprising among the populace, and it would cause all sorts of trouble. With that said, it's reasonable to wonder that if they really were not happy about all that he was doing, why in the world, in today's text, did they ask him to do one more? If they're already irritated about what was going on, why? In verse 38, do they say, teacher... Show us a sign. What was their motivation? What was going on in their mind here? Well, here's the thing. In Matthew 12, they weren't asking for just any old sign with a blind person. They had seen that. They weren't asking for that. What they wanted now was something that would occur, some event, perhaps in the heavenlies above, that would indisputably have divine origins and testify to this individual. Now, what kind of indisputably divine sign are we talking about? Well, in Matthew 16, there's a parallel interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And at that time, they straightforwardly said, show us a sign from heaven. Not with the blind person, not with the mute person, not with the demon person, none of those people. You've already done that. We now want something different, something better, something that could only be done by the hand of God himself. Show us a sign in heaven. The heavens, some sort of celestial display. The pastor, John MacArthur, he put it this way. He said what they were really looking for was like this angelic parade upon the Milky Way. Something that would occur up there that would theoretically convince them the authority of the one who done the sign. They were saying, everything you've done so far, if we're not convinced, show us a sign in the heavens. Now, if you're Jesus... You look at these guys, they're demanding you to do a sign. First of all, that's not the way this worked. But second of all, you know, if raising dead people wasn't enough, if they could explain that away, then they could explain anything away. And that's always been the case. How many times have supernatural miracles happened in the Bible that even today, theologians say, well, Jesus is walking on water. Well, it wasn't really him walking on the water. It was a sandbar he was on. Or they'll argue that the Red Sea was actually only inches deep and it was no real miracle. A little wind came up and parted it. There's all manner of people, even who call themselves theologians, who look back at events of Scripture and try to diminish what they were and find some sort of natural explanation. Well, here's the thing. If an angelic parade occurred in the Milky Way, they were going to do the same thing. They would find any manner of ways to say, oh, it's a trick of light or it's a delusion. We all had some bad corned beef or something. It's a delusion that we all had. They were absolutely, no matter what he did, going to deny it. They were absolutely going to deny it. And he knew this that they would wrinkle up their nose and they'd keep wanting more. You know, that can be a trap as a side note that you and I or, or people we love in the greater church can fall into. We can know what God has told us here, right? We can say, okay, you know, thus saith the Lord. And we'll say, amen and amen. But then in our own life, we encounter some problem or some issue comes before us, some decision, turn left, turn right, and suddenly that's no longer good enough. Suddenly we say, God, show me a sign. God, the leading of your spirit in combination with this book is evidently not enough. Show me something else. We can fall into that same trap. Well, I'll tell you this much. If you're neglecting what's in here, don't ask for him to write it with his finger on the wall. 
Don't ask him to arrange the alphabet serial to spell out a word that tells you what to do if you're not paying any attention to what's in here. Start here. You want to know whether to turn left or right in your life? Start here. You try to manufacture all other sorts of things in the world around you as signs that may or may not be pointing you what to do? Well, maybe God will use those things and maybe he won't. But I know this much, he does use this. He does use his word. So start here. Use the revelation that he's given you. Well, Jesus had given these guys plenty of revelations. They rejected it. They told them to do one more. So how did Jesus respond? Well, let's look at verse 39. Verse 39. But he answered and he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. All right. As we said a few moments ago, God doesn't do parlor tricks. That's just not his thing. Furthermore, God doesn't owe us beans. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us the signs, wonders, miracles. He doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. That's not on his radar. He doesn't have to lift a single finger to convince anybody of anything. Absolutely not. Now, if that's true, and I hope that you would agree, if you would agree that God is not compelled by anybody to do anything, if you would agree that that's true, that he doesn't have to do any signs, then a question would be, why did he do them? If he didn't have to, and yet the Bible's full of signs, then why did he do these? If Jesus didn't have to do any signs then why did he do some signs? Well, if you look at all the miracles that he performed, they had a common theme. And among them was grace. When he heals a blind person, raises a dead person, casts out a demon, he's approaching those in dire need. And out of the love and empathy and compassion of the heart of God, he does something. Because it's in his power, and it's his inclination to do just that. He has the power to assist And he had the desire to assist, and so that's what he did. His miracles, his deeds, his wonders, they're regularly based on people's needs. But never once, never, based on their demands. Lame people walked. Blind people saw. Hungry people ate fish and bread. Dead people received life. The common thing was that his miracles were grace-oriented. They were done because people needed these things, and they were used to testify to the one who did the miracles, but not because anyone demanded them. Now compare that to the Pharisees' insistence in verse 38. Verse 38, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, if you read this in its proper context, remember, they've already been arguing. You look earlier in the chapter, This is not like, teacher, could you please do such and such? These are people who've already been at odds, at loggerheads earlier in this text. They've already been arguing here. And so this is better read this way. Teacher, submit your best evidence to our approval. Teacher, validate. Validate through some sign that we can sensibly, discernibly perceive and evaluate and judge. Put yourself forward in such a way that we have the ability to evaluate and pass judgment upon it and upon you. So they wanted a miracle, they wanted a sign, they wanted it on their terms. And they wanted, again, a very impressive sign, something in the heavens. Well, Jesus, again, he's got an answer for them. And immediately he says, oh, you want a sign. You want a sign. An evil and adulterous generation standing before me, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and you want a sign. Well, here's the thing. I'll give you a sign, but it's not going to be the sign you're asking for. It's not going to be a sign you're expecting. This is going to be the sign. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. 
Now, the name Jonah conjures up a lot of different things to the Hebrew. Very few of them are positive. Very few of them are encouraging. And so when Jesus says, boom, 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 I'll give you a sign, the sign of Jonah, this had ominous overtones. So what are they? Well, let's look at verse 40. Verse 40, Jesus explains. He said this. He says, as Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so, so will the Son of Man, you can see almost him pointing to himself, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was not a confusing euphemism. That was burial. That was death. Now, let's rewind. What do you remember about the story of Jonah? Well, most of us remember the fish, the whale, and Jonah being swallowed and the like. We remember kind of a Veggie Tales picture of what the book of Jonah was all about. I hope and trust that you all remember more because we studied it this spring. And if you don't remember more, then I did a terrible job. If, however, I did an effective job, then what you would remember is that the story of Jonah was not just about the whale, but it was about this guy who was taken down to the belly of the earth, who went down in the whale, who was cast in, this sinner was cast into the oceans that the wrath of God might be satisfied. Jonah, if you remember, Jonah wanted no part of the mission that God had sent him on to go and preach repentance to the Ninevites. He ran, he boarded a ship to go to Tarshish, which is at the far end of the then first century world. While he was on that boat, remember God whips up this isolated storm upon the boat. It's so bad, the sailors don't know what to do, and ultimately the only option is to cast Jonah into the waters. And when he's cast into the waters, the storm is calm. So Jonah is sacrificed. Jonah the sinner, Jonah the rebel, Jonah the guy who's not doing what God told him to do, he is sacrificed, thrown into the storm that typifies the wrath of God, and as a result, God's wrath is satisfied through the sacrifice of Jonah. Now Jonah, after he sank into the waters, Scripture in chapter 2 of Jonah says he went down to the moorings of the mountains and the seaweed is gathered around his head, but then... God sends this great fish, this whale, whatever it was, this traveling air pocket to scoop him up and to secure him and to safely carry him for how long? For three days and three nights until ultimately depositing him on the beach. Now that's the story of Jonah. It's really not a hard story to understand. So in what way, if you're a Pharisee, in what way to that point to Jesus? In what way could a sign that looked like that be done by this guy? That was the question that they had. Again, Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, again, the heart of the earth, that's the telling phrase, because to the Hebrews, they understood what that meant. That meant that he was going to be buried. He was going to be under the ground or in a tomb. He was going to be dead is what it implied. But you'll notice here that if it implies his death, it simultaneously implies his resurrection, because Jesus says, hey, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. I may, the Son of Man, the guy standing before you, may go into the heart of the earth. But you know what? It will also be only for three days and three nights. Just like Jonah, Jesus would spend his time immersed for a short season in death's grip. But like Jonah, it would not last forever. Jonah had been swallowed by a creature, taken to the depths. In order for Jonah to return to the land of the living, it would require a great miracle. If you had watched Jonah be cast into the waters and you had peered down and then watched him be swallowed by a whale or great fish, you would have said this much in your diary. Dear diary, today Jonah died. Jonah was swallowed by a whale never to be seen again. Well, 
when Jesus died on the cross, you would think that the Roman centurions would have gone back and said the same thing. Today, Jesus died, never to be seen again. Whether you're swallowed by a whale in the bottom of the ocean, or you die on a cross and your lifeblood seeps out to the ground below you, this much is true in both cases. It is reasonable to assume that you will never be seen again. However, Jonah was seen again after this short period of time. And Jesus here is saying, that's the sign. That's what you're going to see. A sign that will absolutely validate. Not just everything I've been saying, but everything that the Old Testament said I would do. All right, let's look at what Jesus adds in our last verses. Verses 41 and 42. Now the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment. Who's Nineveh? Remember, those are the people that Jonah was sent to. So he's referring to the Ninevites, the very people that repented upon Jonah's prophecy. And he says, the men of Nineveh, those pagan Assyrians from centuries ago, they will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented, they, these pagan Assyrians, repented at the preaching of Jonah, the least likely prophet ever to do it. They repented on the basis of what he said. Verse 141 says, Indeed, one who is greater than Jonah is now here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, one greater than Solomon is here. As we said a moment ago, the most amazing part of the story of Jonah was not about the whale. The most amazing part of the story of Jonah is not just that Jonah survived to live another day, although that is impressive enough. But the most impressive part is that after he survived, after he dried himself off on the beach, he went to go do what God told him to do. He went into Nineveh. Then he preached a sermon, a sermon that five words long in Hebrew, eight words long in English, and it basically went like this, repent. And the people repented. The Ninevites, this large city from the king on down, they repented. Not just a large city, but a large pagan city, a large wicked city. A city so bad that its wickedness rose up like a bad stench in the nostrils of God. That place, the least likely place in the then modern earth, the least likely city to ever repent and turn to the God of heaven seeking forgiveness, the least likely place repented with the least likely prophet leading them to that repentance. Jesus in this text says, Jonah, the guy that we all know as what? As the reluctant prophet. Jonah, the guy who didn't even want to be there. Jonah, the guy who preached the message and then sat on the hillside still hoping that the people would burn. That guy, that guy preached the message and they respond. The least likely prophet in all of scripture spoke to the most evil people in that context of the Old Testament and they responded. Conversely, conversely, Jesus is saying this. When the Son of God preached to the Pharisees, when the Son of God preached to the religious elite and the people of his own day in his native land in Jerusalem, when the greatest prophetic voice that all the other prophets pointed forward to stand in the midst of his own people in their own land and told them things of God, things of glory, when the Pharisees could look God in the eyeball, could put out their hand and touch God, When they had an advantage that no Ninevite ever did, they rejected while the Ninevites repented. And so Jesus says, the men in Nineveh will rise up in judgment against you because one greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah is now standing before you and you want a sign. You want a sign. Again, he's highlighting the hardness of their hearts. 
He's highlighting the sinful nature, the sinful nature of their ontological disposition. They were disinclined by nature, by fallenness, to recognize God for who he was. What did they need? They didn't need a sign. They were asking for a sign. That's not what they needed. What they needed was regeneration. They needed a new nature. Can you ever name a Pharisee who was regenerated, born again, and able to see Jesus for who he was? Paul. They needed whatever God did to Paul, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, these guys needed it. And apart from that, apart from that, they would die in their sins. No bushel full of wonders and signs and miracles would ever convince them if their heart remained hard. All right, I'm going to go ahead and look to wrap up this morning. And as I do so, let me return briefly just to the overall topic of signs and our own walk and our own life. If you're like most people, then this week or this month or this year, you're sitting on the precipice of some sort of decision. If you're like most people, you probably have some issue on your radar that you're really hoping that God will clear up for you, that he'll give you some direction to help you out with. And so you may be waiting for God to show you something, show you some sort of sign. And because that's where we can get in our mindset that I need God to show me something, then what do we do this week? We start to filter every conversation and say, is that it? Everything that happens, we start reading the tea leaves and go, ooh, you know, my alarm clock failed to go off this morning. What does that mean? You know, there's all sorts of stuff we try to discern and we say, is this a sign? And then we can get really far afield and we're just looking to the clouds, seeing if a cloud morphs together in a certain shape. Should that tell us something? We start looking for signs just about everywhere. If that's you this week, you're going to be waiting for a while. You're going to be waiting for a while. See, God does lead us providentially. This is true. He does open doors and close doors, undoubtedly. And there are times when something has happened in our life that seems providentially to have very clearly directed us in a path that we ought to go. You probably have these experiences at some time or another. He's put situations or doors or opportunities before you that funnel us or lead us in the direction we ought to go. So in a sense, God uses signs, but notice that those signs are normative. It's not miraculous in the sense of the words that you're supposed to follow being written on the wall of the church or in the clouds or in your alphabet serial. You see, providence is different. Looking for God to providentially lead you, which he does all the time, is different than insisting, God, you got to show me something really special in order for me to do what you would have me do. God's not under any compunction to honor your request for some outstanding, miraculous sign in the heavens, any more than he was under compunction to do it for the Pharisees. He typically does not do that. Why? Because that sort of thing does not grow our faith. Faith grows not because you have all the facts, but because you don't. Faith, it doesn't grow because you know everything, and God has written it all in the clouds or in your cereal or in your journal or what have you. Faith grows in those times when you don't know what he's doing. But you know who he is. Like a dark room, a child puts up a hand. The father takes it. The child can feel the father leading them through the darkness, even though the child still doesn't know where they're going. That's the normative, ordinary way that God works. Why? Because that builds faith. Your faith grows by trusting God's promises, trusting the covenant, trusting his nature, trusting who he is, not by constantly looking for miracles as these mile markers, as these buoys in the water that you're supposed to guide yourself with. So if someone were to come to me pastorally and say they want a sign of God's leading, I would encourage them to pick up this. I encourage them to be immersed in Scripture because along with the Spirit and providence, that's the primary tool that he uses to guide them. I'm sorry if that's not flashy. 
But it is true. It is the way that God works. If you were to be lost in a jungle, if you're lost anywhere on the highways, you don't necessarily need a supernatural event to happen above you. You need a map. You need something directive that tells you, that gives you a picture of of reality. Well, that's what God has given us. And the proof is throughout the book itself. What does the psalmist famously say? He says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. If I want to know where to go, I'm not just going to close my eyes and point, and I'm not going to look for it to be written on the clouds. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It lights the path before me. You should first and foremost be a student of this if you want to have some picture of what God is doing in your life. The Pharisees demanded something more. They demanded something else, something they were never going to receive, something that they never really needed. This morning, don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. Trust God's existing revelation in his word as ordinary means to point you in the direction that you should go. That's not flashy. It is scriptural. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.